The cap table sponsor is First Bank, a bank not only known for being at the forefront of community banking since 1906, but one that is becoming well-known as setting the bar for banking innovation. First Bank is helping pave the way for blockchain applications in the highly regulated financial services sector and is also taking the lead in ushering in a new era of banking. Headquartered in Nashville, First Bank is not just a thought leader. They're the bank people think of when they're ready to take their next big leap. First Bank. Bank local. Get more. Member FDIC. What's up, everybody? I'm Garrett Elmore, co-founder, tech entrepreneur, and alternative asset investor. And I'm Haley Sapolsky, a.k.a. Zap, venture capital fundraiser, startup community builder, and blockchain enthusiast. And we're bringing to you The Cap Table, the podcast with intricate investor conversations you've never heard before. From angel investors to partners in billion-dollar funds, we talk with the people who are daring enough to put their own money into something or someone else. The people who take risks, build empires, and focus on gaining success. You can listen to us on all social media platforms. Subscribe to The Cap Table to follow along and learn more about investing. are here live at the Johnny Cash Bar and Barbecue located on 3rd Avenue South right off of Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee. We're grateful for them allowing us to host at this beautiful venue. If you have not been here before, please be sure to check them out to see the warm and personal side of the man in black at the Johnny Cash Bar and Barbecue. Every entrepreneur's dream is to sell a business they've started. In this episode, Brian Fox had a vision and executed. Previously founding Confirmation.com resulted in one of the largest sale transactions in the Nashville tech startup scene history. He then almost immediately turned to investing, using his previous knowledge at a startup to then investing his own capital into businesses he truly believed in. This is an episode all entrepreneurs dream of. Welcome, everyone, to the cap table. Yeah. Brian, we're so stoked to have you. Good morning. We're, we're here with here. Brian Fox. So, um, yeah, luckily, well, I, I like to tell everyone it's early down here, so we bear the traffic of, of Broadway recently, and uh, this is about the only time that we'll come down here. And uh, yeah, No screaming, you know, vans or cars yeah, party, party, party buses. buses. Or, yeah. Just give it two more hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, they'll be out soon. It's crazy. I'm with two Nashville unicorns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't get that all the time. No. Yeah, so so let's talk about Nashville. I mean, so so you grew up here. Um, you went to high school here. And then, and then where did you go to? Did you go to college around here? Or did you? I, I, well, I went to Innsworth for grade school, Brentwood Academy for high school, and then left Tennessee for a while, went to SMU in Dallas okay. for college. Wanted to get out of state for a little bit, but uh, always knew I'd come back here. So Vandy was always in the cards for graduate school. Gotcha. Um, so that was the game plan was to go – Somewhere different than Nashville. Did you go straight from undergrad to grad school, or no? Did you I stay worked for a little in bit. Dallas. I stayed in Dallas for 
a few years, worked for Ernst & Young in audit to start with, and then PricewaterhouseCoopers in the mergers and acquisitions group, also oh, okay. in Dallas, and figured I'd, I'd just apply to Vandy until I annoyed them enough that they let me in, and fortunately, they, they did uh, the first time, and so I knew I was coming back. No, I didn't apply <laughs> anywhere else. You acted like you did multiple tries. <laughs> well, that was the game plan. I only applied one place. And oh, said, you that know, was your only yeah, bet. Yeah, that was it. Wow. Yeah, like half my family either has go. gone to Vandy and the other half Tennessee, so Thanksgiving's a fun you know, a little football game weekend. They're not for the Vandy fans, but most yeah. of the time. But, uh, no, my grandmother was going to disown me if I didn't get to Vandy at some point in time. So <laughs> Really? Yeah. yeah. That mm. is so funny. And see, and see, we always come back. It's, you know, everyone leaves, but but uh, we're always coming. I mean, did, did you see any any shifts uh, after you moved back with the way that Nashville is going? I mean, obviously, we didn't project, you know, maybe back then that, that this town was going to shoot up like it did. But did you see any, like— insights with real estate or, or shifts for people moving here in town? It was definitely changed. So I moved back here in 99 and it had started to change a little bit. But when I started confirmation.com, I started in June of 2000. And in trying to find technology resources, it was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody I talked to were like, look, you know, everybody that graduates from Nashville school with computer science background is getting pulled to one of the two coasts. And so, you know, it was all nearly impossible to find resources that were willing to stay in Nashville. And the, and the discussion at the time, and we had this thing called, I think it was either Partnership 2020 or Vision 2020 that the chamber put together, which was a group of uh, entrepreneurs, then the accountants, bankers, lawyers, and, and others. And it was like, what does Nashville need to get to that next level? And, and the Entrepreneur Center was the result of that. Um, that discussion, but part of that discussion was how do we keep the talent here? Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to create an ecosystem where not just the people who graduate with computer science stay here, but people want to come to Nashville? And so that was, we were on the forefront of that. So it was people like Bo Bartholomew and Clint Smith and, and Sid Chambliss and others that were part of that conversation and dialogue with others who had uh, kind of already established themselves as we were kind of all up and coming. And they were said, what kind of resources do you guys need as entrepreneurs to, to really be attractive as a city? Did, did, you, did you jump into <laughs> the EC when, when you started your business? Well, there wasn't. There wasn't an EC. Yeah, yeah. there wasn't. Oh. No, we were in my grandmother's garage at the time. Um, were you getting <laughs> your MBA when you started your business? I was. Okay. So in, that in between, you know, between your first and second year, when most people go get an internship, I, I actually started Confirmation.com. Uh, that summer. But mm -hmm. at the time, the, the, the EC was a virtual. So the first version was virtual. And then kind of the second version was over in the where Pinnacle and the Chamber were. Uh, and then we finally got the city to, to grant us the trolley barn. And that gave us a, a real facility, uh, which was great for the city, for sure. Wow. So what sparked this idea while, you know, I'm sure... Your other MBA peers were probably working at Fortune 500 companies that summer. Yeah. What made you do something different and go off on your own? Well, I, I knew always, the goal was always to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know what the business was going to be. Why was that the goal? Like, where did that goal really come from? My family was very entrepreneurial. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I always talk about my, my grandmother, the one who I said was going to disown me. She was very <laughs> entrepreneurial. My grand, grandfathers uh, all started my on my dad's side, my grandfather at a high school, uh, had a high school degree, but he ended up being a, a contractor, just building homes, which is what my dad and his brothers did. On my mom's side, my, my one grandfather that I didn't know, he passed away before I was born, but he had a manufacturing plants and, and did those kind of things. And when my grandmother, uh, when my grandfather died, uh, my grandmother was looking, you know, kind of after his, he passed, uh, a friend of hers uh, said, well, you need to get back on your feet and do something. And so she started a dress shop. 
uh, in her 50s. And it was called Patty French's. And then it it was right there in the Green Hills Mall area. It was when the whole mall was outdoors. Uh, There was no real indoor mall. She had had a place there. And always, my mom always says, you know, I was running around the dress shop, you know, behind the dresses, causing havoc and stuff. And um, then she sold that to my brother's godmother. It became Coco's, which was in Nashville for a long, long time. Um, Wait, and, not not Italian market. No, no, okay. the, the dress shop Coco's. <laughs> gotcha. Um, Cornelia Crawford bought that, my brother's godmother, and mm. stayed around for a long time. And uh, she was just always very entrepreneurial. So my my grandfather, the one I knew, she remarried. Um, they got into doing, uh, they liked to travel. And they would go into restaurants that they would drive around to and that they liked and they'd go in and talk to them and say, hey, are you expanding? We'll do the land and building. And so they they got into real estate that way by just doing the mm-hmm. triple net leases, land and building. So I watched her create a, uh, you know, a dress shop and then a real estate kind of uh, empire for our family, if you will. I mean, wow. that was kind of her deal. Um, and my grandfather, the, the two of them probably the most, two of the most influential for me. He, uh, really cool story, he and his brother were going uh, in World War II to enlist with a friend in the Marines, and, and the friend had flat feet, and he couldn't couldn't enlist, so he didn't. And they, he and his brother ended up enlisting in the Army. Flat feet? Is yeah, that, that was, was the thing back then, right? You couldn't get into the military with flat feet. And uh, he he started as a, a as a private and then retired as a one-star general. And so I kind of loved following their footsteps of, of seeing them to, to achieve and do things. And, my, and he was always full of wisdom, you know, wake up earlier than anybody else, work harder. Yeah, there's always somebody better off than you and somebody always worse off than you. And, uh, you know, so they were always giving me that that grandparent advice throughout my years. But but very entrepreneurial family. So I, you know, sold the, did the lemonade stands and had a driveway ceiling company when I was in high school and college and oh did those gosh. kind of things. So it was always the game plan to to go start my own company at some point in time. Wow. And, and is that just because you worked, you know, um, in a nine to five and you just wanted to go against the grain or is this like, did this idea kind of form during your MBA or were you just it was passionate it, about it? Yeah. I think I was always passionate about being creative and doing something, you know, on, on your own and, and going and trying, um, you know, kind of risking it and, and reaping the rewards. You know, when I was at Ernst and Young, super people, and I, I really loved the, the folks I worked with, but the first year we had, I think it was 42 people in our start class, and all 42 of us got promoted to the next level, mm. you know, and then we all got promoted to seniors. And I remember when, when we all got promoted to seniors, uh, all, all of us, um, there was five of us that I guess had gotten tapped for being, you know, the top five, and our reward was we got an extra $1,000 in, in, our, in our pay raise. And as an accountant, right, I'm a CPA as background, and so, you know, $1,000, it's less than about 50 bucks after taxes per month. Uh, I was like, so you're buying me dinner one night a week for, you know, one night a month for all the weekend work and all the overtime that yeah. I worked. I was like, that wasn't a, a direct correlation to the amount of work we put in. And so I, you know, mm. always wanted to have an opportunity where there was a direct relationship between the amount of work I put in and creativity I put in to the outcome, the potential outcome, mm-hmm. right? Nothing's guaranteed, but to have that opportunity. Yeah. And so how long were you in uh, confirmation.com? So confirmation.com I had for 19 years oh, before wow. I sold. So I started in June of 2000 and then sold it in uh, in uh, kind of at the tail end of 2019. So just recent. I mean, yeah. relatively Very, recently. Fairly recently. And well, then, what, go ahead. What was it like building it during the dot-com bust when you were still <laughs> kind of in those early stages and probably companies were falling all around you? It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the way we – I'll give you the quick overview, but the way we got started, I was going to go work for dot-com. So the dot-com – bubble was happening when I was in graduate school and I was good. I figured I'd work for two big companies. I'll go work for a small one and then start out on my own. 
And uh, I had an idea. You wrote a business plan for it in Jermaine Bear's entrepreneurship class. And uh, he was like, oh, you ought to go do this. And I'm like, well, I don't have any money. Um, and so I was, I was interviewing for internships. And then my father was killed in a, in a hiking accident. Oh, wow. And uh, so my mom and brother and I used his life insurance policy as the seed capital for the business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had wow. any money to start wow. the business. And uh, so put the money in and, and really used my classmates that first year to help write the marketing plan, the tech plan, those kind of things. And the, the internet bubble burst right about that time. And I'm like, oh, this hurts. But I was, you know, the 26-year-old CEO of a dot-com. I'm like, no longer cool. Like, you know, yeah. they want real revenue, not just eyeballs. And they want to see some gray hair and wisdom and people who've been there and done that. And I had two years of EY and one year at PwC at that point in time, which wasn't necessarily going to impress anybody. And got out of uh, graduate school, finished, uh, had brought on a couple of people, uh, one of them being my, my business mentor, Chris Shellhorn. And, um, we were out raising money, and we were going to raise a million dollars, and we pretty much had it done. We had the lead investor was going to go and the follow-on investors, and so we had to pitch to the investment committee of the, the lead investor, which was the Nashville, uh, the Vanderbilt Ch- Chancellor's Fund, mm. and they were going to put in the, the, seed, the, the lead investment. And so we went in, we pitched. They said, hey, everything looks great. You know, you guys go sit in the conference room. We'll come back in a little bit. So we, we sat there that evening, and, and uh, I always have – you know, back up with CPA, right? I've got the risk side of my personality and the, the conservative side. So I've got the CPA side. So I had, yeah. I've still, you know, I had the paper copies and the overhead slicks and those kind of things. And so we presented, they said everything went well. A couple hours later, they came back in. We're like, what's going on? And they said, oh, we've got this portfolio company. It's a mess. You guys go home. Everything looked great. We'll call you tomorrow. And so we, uh, that, that next morning, Chris flew back to uh, Connecticut where he's from. And they called us about 10 o'clock and said, oh, you're not going to believe it. We, this portfolio company had to change out the CEO. So we had to fire him. We went late until the morning, wee hours of the night. All three of the companies that pitched are going to get the investment. They all look great, but we're going to vote at next week's meeting. We said, great. Sounds good. So one, one week to wait. Well, we had, we had pitched on September 7th. Mm-hmm. They called us on the 8th. Three days later, 9-11 happens. Wow. Oh, no. So here we wow. are with the internet bubble bursting. 9-11 happens, we have no money, and the financial markets disappear totally, right? And we're pre-revenue. Totally. So companies that had revenue, their LPs, their, their VC firms were just letting them die, right? Because the LPs were like, sue me, we're not sending you any money. We, this is like a world war. We yeah. don't know what's happening. And so nobody was getting funded. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so for two years, uh, we ran up my credit card debt. Everybody got paid in, <laughs> in equity. People ate their own expenses, Really? Uh, yeah. So there was four of us, uh, Jeanette Hauser, Dave Malone, Chris Shilhorn, and I working out of my, my grandmother's garage. We're kind of the first in the, in the garage. So we truly did the, the garage thing wow. there for a couple of years. And then the markets opened up. We were growing and got, had to get real creative with how we were growing the business during those early lean years. And I always tell people I'd come downtown. <clears throat> and when we were trying to raise money or sell banks and accounting firms with our customers, I could never cross my legs because every pair of shoes I had had holes in the bottom. <laughs> and I would try and do the duct tape, and there were these little things at Walgreens I could put on there. But especially during the wintertime, like, I'd go into meetings with, like, cold, wet feet because the, the water had come in my shoes, and I had, like, soggy socks, you know, when I was <laughs> meeting with these people. So they were shined on top, but the, every pair, every pair had holes in them. Oh, um, my God. It was crazy. One time um, I had, uh, was trying to get this bank to use our service. Didn't, didn't happen early on that bank. Um, but I didn't have any money to get out of the parking garage downtown. And we had, at that point in time, 
just to get things crazier because I always tell people that entrepreneurs have a real life at the same time they have their business. Yeah. Our, our first daughter was born before went to graduate school. My wife and I were both in graduate school at the same time at Vandy. Uh, she was born the week before graduate school started. Wow. The week of graduation, we found out we were expecting our second. And a couple months later, we adopted my wife's half-brother who was 14. So as we were trying to raise money that summer, right, and then 9-11 <laughs> happens, we have have a one-and-a-half-year-old, one on the way, and we just adopted a 14-year-old, and I was 27. And uh, it was <laughs> crazy. And so, uh, yeah, so she had to come downtown with, uh, with our baby in the, in, the, in the car seat. She was pregnant. It was cold outside in the winter, and uh, just to give me enough money to get out of the parking garage because I didn't have it in the ATM, and our credit card was maxed out. So she had to come bring me cash just to get out of the parking garage. So it was, it was crazy times. Oh, my gosh. So, so you really went, <laughs> you went through it. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, it was stressful. <laughs> Your wife went through it, too, it sounds like. She did. <laughs> yeah. She absolutely did. It was oh, a roller coaster. Oh, my God. Can you explain, like, what Confirmation.com is for folks? Yeah. Um, essentially, we help, comp- we help the banks, accounting firms, and regulators find financial fraud. And the fraud that we catch, the fraud that confirmation.com catches is if you think about any time somebody either inflates their revenue for all the obvious reasons, right? They want to raise their stock price. They just want to look good so they can borrow more money, whatever the case is. If they've inflated their revenue or if they've stolen enough cash out of the business that's material. So not out of the petty cash drawer, but enough cash that would put the business out of business. Those are the, type, those are the two frauds that, that confirmation.com was built to catch. And those are the, the two most likely types of frauds that, that typically happen, right? People stealing a lot of cash or inflating the revenue in order to, to personally benefit themselves. Mm. So, wow. that, that, so we created a secure clearinghouse where we validated the accounting firms on one side, the banks on the other. And we created that network where they could trust our network to know that the information they were getting was correct. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I saw was for the 100 years prior, it was very easy to manipulate the process because it was a manual-based paper process. And I'm like, I could commit fraud on Ernst & Young and PwC. Like, bad guys probably have figured this out too. Yeah. And as I did my research, sure enough, they had. And, and that was a lot of the frauds that had taken place. The very first one happened in the 1920s, uh, McKesson and Robbins committed revenue fraud, right, where they had inflated the revenue and the receivables were phony. And uh, so, I mean, it's been a 100-year fraud uh, mm, that had been going on, and nobody bothered to fix it. Yeah. And so I said, well, hey, we could, this is crazy, but it's like 98, 99, right? I was like, hey, we could use this new thing that's only a couple years old called the internet to create a secure clearinghouse. And now it seems obvious, but everybody's like, oh, what are you, emailing everything? I'm like, yeah. no, no, we're creating this clearinghouse where, you know, everybody logs in and, you know, everybody's trusted party, third party. We built the network out. It's secure, confidential, and private, and and yeah, and so we had literally had to explain to people what that type of model looked like at the mm. time, uh, oh which was my, nuts. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's crazy! And I just, I can't imagine. I mean, nowadays, fraud is more than than, than we know, right? I mean, yeah. I've, I've been hacked on you know my email <laughs> and and say like, hey, you know, you owe me thirty eight thousand dollars, or right, and wire it there. Like it, yeah. it got sent to someone that I knew and. And they almost paid it or something. And I'm like, what are you doing, right? And so I, I think fraud now is, like, back then, you know, an internet, you know, type of way to, to create something is super unique to it, me. Like, yeah, business fraud is totally different. Yeah. And, like, white-collar crime and when you own the business. Yeah. I mean, with the internet, it made it made <clears throat> financial fraud so much easier mm-hmm. in, in all reality, right? Before, you know, when you guys watch Catch Me If You Can, right, he had the, the model airplanes in the bathtub and he was putting, like, logos on the checks and doing all those kind of things. Nowadays, 
you don't even have to be in the United States to commit fraud in the United States. Just and do a couple clicks. Do a couple clicks yeah. and, and you can get it and, it. and there's almost zero repercussions because you're outside of our jurisdiction and the money's oh. gone. And so that's, that's why it's made it just so much easier. Interesting. Um, and so we've seen just tons of fraud. But o- over that 19-year period, we caught billions in fraud. Uh, Haley and I were talking about it, right? We caught billions in fraud over the years, put a lot mm-hmm. of bad guys in jail. Yeah. Um, so that was always the reward. They were even on a TV show. Who? Tell you, Garrett. You guys yeah. were? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> one of the frauds that we caught, which was Peregrine Financial Group, PFG, uh, Russell Wasendorf, the CEO of that business, and he stole $216 million over a 20-year period. One and, guy? Uh, one guy. And, uh, you know, if he'd been allowed, he'd have stolen another $100 million in the next 10 years. But Confirmation.com service, when the regulators used it, in this case, the, the NFA, the National Futures Association, had mandated the use of our service. And uh, at first he was like, oh, I don't like the service. Don't, I don't trust it, whatever. It's not working right. Um, but then they finally said, look, if you don't allow the use of the service because there is a client authorization, then we're going to shut your firm down. And so he went in and he approved it on Sunday. We could see it in the system. He went in and approved it on Sunday. And, and on Monday morning, he went into the office, did the try to commit suicide, the old hose to the tailpipe. And, a, and a, an employee of his saw that in the parking lot called 911, but he had written some suicide notes, had one on him that basically said, look, oh. you people are all stupid enough. This, you know, you deserve this. Yeah. And uh, that's it's why I was stealing your money the whole time because you guys are all stupider than I am. And, yeah. and uh, so you deserve it. Dang so, yeah, wow. so so he, he ended up not dying, right? It was the, yeah. the, the law and order woke up in, you know, probably the hospital with the handcuffs on. No uh, way. But he's probably going to be in jail the rest of his life at this point in time. Dang. Yeah. So we t- caught we caught a lot of those. That was a lot of fun. Talk about a, a company that started that that is mandated by you like you have to use my yeah. service that I created. And then you're you're catching, you know, 216 million dollars worth of, you know, money being yeah. stolen, right? That's amazing. And so talk about then 2019, <laughs> you get to that point and and are you ready to exit or is someone approach you and and you wanna you wanna get out of there, or how does that work? Yeah, so we had done a few rounds of funding early, right? My it was kind of family and friends and anybody that felt sorry for us. So we we did that, and then we raised an A round, then a B round, uh, and that took us to cash flow positive. And so what happened was we always said, hey, when we hit cash flow positive, we'll sell the business. And so we started to do that in, in 2009 and 10. Uh, we were number 96 on the Inc. 500, and we were cash flow positive. And as you guys may remember, right, the economy was terrible. The mm-hmm. economy had tanked in nine and ten. And so, but we were throwing off a lot of cash and doing fantastic. And so we looked around to, to maybe sell the business at that point in time, but valuations were terrible. Friends were taking 50% haircuts on valuations. And we were like, thanks, but no thanks. And so we actually paid dividends for the next couple of years. We, oh, wow. The next year, we were number 169 on the Inc. 500. And then for the next, you know, I guess, total of 10 years in a row, we were on the Inc. 5000. And so we were growing great. And so we said, all right, when's the next time when you want to look to sell? And so we said, well, you know, when you get to $20 million in revenue, there's kind of an extra multiple that goes in there. And so we said, well, when we get to 20 And so as we had visibility on that, <clears throat> we hired uh, FT Partners, uh, Steve McLaughlin, who's great, and his team. And we said, hey, we want to sell the business. And we hired him a, about 18 months ahead of when we were going to hit the $20 million. And, and as he got to know us over breakfast and lunches and dinners. He's like, hey, why, why do you guys want to sell the business? You, you love it? It's growing fantastic. I think at that point, I mean, we were probably in 120 countries with offices at probably in 10 or 12. Mm. <clears throat> and he said, you know, you, you guys love the business. It's growing great. You don't have any competition. Why do you want to sell? And we're like, well, you know, I, I've got two assets, this my house and this business. And every day I feel like I'm waking up and, you know, the, the chips on 
you know, number 14, right? Yeah. It, not red or black. It's like number 14. And, and everything I've built, you know, could go away if, if this didn't work out. And I'd like to be able to diversify. All my business school friends were mm-hmm. calling me like, hey, you need to diversify your assets. I'm like, I got two assets. And everything's in both. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he said, well, you know, have you thought about some other options? And we said, well, like what? And he's like, well, how about debt? And we're like, don't want to do debt. Mm-hmm. Been there, done that. You know, we're cash flow positive. We got a, no debt on the balance sheet. Don't want any debt. Plus, didn't think that somebody would give us enough debt. I said, look, I, I want to be able to have enough money if, in this transaction that if it all went to zero, I could still retire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so he said, all right. So he said, how about a majority investor? And we said, well, if somebody's going to buy us, they should own us. Um, just go ahead and buy us. But we don't want you know, 49% of our equity tied up in somebody else's hands yeah. um, in decision-making. Because we know this market better than anybody else. We built it. Sure. And so he said, well, how about a minority investment? And again, we said, well, only if we could cash out enough that if, if it all went to zero, we could still retire. And he said, well, what if I could do that? And we're like, well, if you can pull that rabbit out of a hat, we're in. <laughs> and sure enough, we went out and we ran a, a PE-only process okay. and that came down to a couple. And we went with Great Hill Partners out of Boston who were just awesome. And so we did a $60 million all-secondary uh, recap. Uh, we wow. put $5 million on the balance sheet. Uh, but we had plenty of cash. We never touched it. Uh, the whole time after they they put the five million in because we were throwing off a lot of cash, <clears throat> and so what happened was a year in, after we did the the recap, um, a, a large uh, corporate came to us and said, "Hey, we want to buy you a company called Walters Kluwer out of Europe," and we said, well, "We're not for sale. We just did the sixty million dollar recap. The game plan is to grow for another four or five years, then put it on the market." And they said, "No, we." we want to buy you, right? They'd kind of court us. They came to Nashville. They invited us to New York. Wow. And they said, what would it take? And I was like, well, you, you knocked on my door. <laughs> yeah, you, you tell me tell what me. you want, right? I'm not going to give you a number. It's only yeah. going down from there. Yeah. And um, so we knew they were serious at that point in time because they were really pressing hard. The market was great. The valuations were strong. And so we, we uh, ended up at that point in time, we hired William Blair out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. We ran a, a, a strategics-only process with no PE firms this time just to see. And uh, Thomson Reuters came out on top and acquired us. Um, so they were above the, the number that we kind of mentally said we needed to hit. And so it worked out great. And we, wow. we sold the business, 100% of it, uh, all cash in, in 2019. Dang. Um, so what a cool story! Yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and probably a little stressful too at the same time. Very incredibly stressful. ran that thing for twenty years though. Yeah, like, yeah. that's a long time to have yeah, that as your baby. Yeah, two thousand to to nineteen. Damn. Um, well, and then what was it like? Okay, so so after you guys are out there with an excess amount of capital, and then now you know obviously this is about investing and stuff. And so what what took you into kind of a first leap of of investing into other <laughs> companies and stuff like that? Well. It, Really, after we had had done the recap, um, I started to kind of I started to invest time a to little diversify. bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. time to and diversify asset. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, so many of our investors and advisors had been friends and, and kind of poured into us. Right, they helped us along the way. My my board members and, and other entrepreneurs, whether it was Joe Maxwell or Clint Smith or, mm-hmm. or others, that you just call and say, "Hey, I need help." Right, I remember. <clears throat> I called Joe one time and I'm like, hey man, I, who do you who, who do you use to, as an attorney? I need an NDA. He's like, don't pay the attorneys, I'll just send you Irish. You change it, right? And so you know, those kind of things were always great um, to find other entrepreneurs who are willing to, to help out, right? Mike Blackburn over at Petra, who 
I found out later would would never we would never have been in there you know uh, you know in in Petra based on where we were and what they were looking for. But Mike spent several times going through our business plan and giving us feedback on it and helping us out. Right. So the kind of people that that poured into us uh, to help us along the way, you just feel obligated to do the same. Sure. Um, and so you know, I had started to do that a little bit, just making little investments and trying to sit on advisory boards. And then when we had the recap, I started to do that a little bit more. And, and a good friend of mine, Bo Bartholomew, and I started sharing some deal flow and doing some things together. And, and then when I sold confirmation in 19, <clears throat> um, Bo had done healthcare technology businesses, PharmMD, and then he was at Shearwater Health. And when both of those businesses had, had sold, he sold uh, Shearwater sold about six months after we sold confirmation. He and I were, were really kind of doing that more, right, kind of full-time, we said, hey, why don't we do this together? And as I share with you, Bo's, Bo and I have known each other since we were in kindergarten. We, our backyards actually were behind each other. No oh, way. And, uh, yeah, so we used to walk back and forth to each other's house all the time. And so we had grown up going to Rockmont uh, Camp in North Carolina. And so we just said, hey, let's create Rockmont Investments. And so that's what we did. It was just, just wow, he and I. Wow, it's your childhood camp. Yeah, that's where the name came from. I would have from. never guessed that, yeah. ever. Oh, no. <laughs> Dang. And, and, so, and so Rockmont Investments, what's, uh, what's your kind of go-to investment thesis for it? So we look at fintech and we look at healthcare technology companies. And a lot of times there's some overlap there. Um, You're really the fintech guy and Bo's kind of the healthcare, healthcare guy. Technology. So you kind of divide yeah. and conquer. And, and what we found is, is as we were, you know, as we had, had kind of sold the businesses, people were approaching us all the time, like, hey, look at this. And so a lot of them were inside opportunities where it wasn't something that was being shopped. Yeah. And <clears throat> a lot of times it was somewhere where either he or I had been an advisor to the business, a consultant to the business, sat on the board, and they were just doing a fundraising round. And we're like, hey, we'd like to participate in that. Sure. And so that, that's really been our deal flow uh, is people – uh, approaching us because they, they kind of know we're, we're operators in the business. And so they want kind of operating uh, help. Yeah. And when there's an opportunity to invest, that's kind of what we've, we've said, Hey, well, we'd love to participate. Or in some cases we've ended up leading some of those. Oh, wow. Um, and we've, we've done it. We don't have a fund. Uh, we're considering it, but we've done them in the forms of, of SPVs. Okay. And sometimes it's just Bo and I, right? So if it's, you know, something that he and I do and it's earlier, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's really early, uh, like an, an idea on a napkin, we'll just do it ourselves. Mm. Um, but if it's a bigger opportunity, maybe a little later stage, and we feel a little more confident about the success opportunity, then we open it up to family, friends, and, and our investors and others mm. that we've met along the way are like, hey, if you see anything you like, give us a call. And so we've syndicated a few deals with some other funds and just brought kind of our investors in uh, to those. Interesting. And, and what I'm what I'm getting from a, a lot of your stories and, and your past life and, and, you know, futures, everything is, is super relationship-based. The people who you know, the, the warm introductions, you know, stuff like that is, is kind of where, where your bread and butter is. Is, is that, is that kind of your, your go-to is like, you know, if, if someone you know is, is talking about something, it, it's kind of what, what you're more interested in? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really been really all of our deal flow to mm-hmm. date has been people we know. Um, you know, and, and we just put a web page up just on the two of us, just literally one page, just so we so people could email us and you know, people who were we were talking to could yeah. be like go read our background, our bio, and then you start getting solicitations We're like, where are these coming from? How are people <laughs> finding us from all these random places? I'm sure you guys get that all the time. Yeah. And we don't have time to to call them back. It's not that we're being rude, but also we don't know them. 
right? And, yeah. and a, lot of, a lot of the feeling that I had the frustration when I was raising money for confirmation.com, uh, I went to places like Kentucky and Atlanta and Dallas to try and raise money. And, and, and ultimately, the gist was, hey, how come the people who know you best aren't investing in you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Why do you have to come to, to Atlanta or Kentucky or Dallas? Why aren't the people in Nashville investing? And at the time, you know, my answer was, we don't have an ecosystem for it. We, we really don't for early stage investing. But they didn't care because angel investors want to be able to have lunch with the folks. They want to know the folks. They want to know the background. Exactly. They want to know that you're committed, that you're not a bad person. And so... You know, for for us, that's that's part of it. Like, who do we know that knows these folks, mm-hmm. right? And and um, one of my investors, Towns Duncan, always said, you know, he made it. It was interesting. It was always hard to get a hold of Towns. He said, well, I made it intentionally hard to get a hold of me um, because if if you if it was too easy, I didn't know if you were a good salesperson or not. Yeah. I wanted to know that you had the tenacity to figure out how to get in touch with me and to get a meeting. That was part of the screening process. I'm like, that was brilliant. What a great, great <laughs> exactly. way to do it. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly my point. Because when when you're going and raising money, it's it's just getting in the room with those people, and it's th- those cold emails necessarily. You know, for for us, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Right? Yeah, and it's more so of like, all right, like we, we want to make this as organic as possible, and and so it seems like for you too. It's it's going out there and getting connected to to people that you know and actually building, you know, something good with them, right? Yeah. And then going from there and yeah. sharing deal flow, right? Yeah. Our, our investment thesis is Bo and I kind of sat down and said, you know, what do we want to do? What's important to us? It was we kind of came up with kind of our little thing, which is maybe a little cheesy, but it was it was people, purpose, and profits, right? And people first. Um, I read a great thing the other day. It said, as you're taught, looking at a potential company to invest in, um, if 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 there's an issue with the people, there is no second question, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? You go the other direction, even if everything else looks good. Yeah. Um, people have got to come first. Totally. And then, you know, we, we, both of us felt strongly that there's a purpose, something bigger than just making money, or for me, bigger than just efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, I always said for confirmation.com, if it was just about efficiency, I'd have sold a long time ago because that's boring. Yeah. You know, the fact that we were helping the good guys catch the bad guys and put bad guys in jail and trying to catch people who are taking advantage of innocent people really made me mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was a, a passion. And I think that permeated throughout our business where people felt that they were really doing something bigger than themselves, bigger than the company. And when you find that kind of an opportunity, a, a, a mission and a, and a real purpose, I think people will wake up on Saturday mornings trying to solve the problems, right? If they're just an employee and there's no real purpose, they check out at five o'clock when they punch the time card. But if there's a real mission and a purpose to the business, then you'll get people who are willing to work you know, maybe uh, maybe below their their normal rate because mm-hmm. they feel strongly about what you're trying to accomplish. Maybe they'll they'll be creative and trying to help you solve the problems, and it's not just your problems, right? So we we found a lot of intrinsic value where there's a mission and a purpose, and then profit. We say, you know, we we don't we're we're not on the west coast, right? You, you, it's not eyeballs. Uh, you don't have to be profitable, but we need a path to profitability, sure. right? We we need to believe that there's a path to profitability that you can articulate. Um, yeah. So those are the three things that as we look at our investment thesis. And and right now, what what kind of gets you up and, and gets you excited with uh with with your you know passions and and stuff like that? Yeah, the entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, more than anything, you know, I get fired up when they're fired up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, th- their passion and, and excitement energizes me. That's the fun part. Um, you know, I was, I was down at the, and I love going to the EC and here in the, the investor pitches, we've done a couple, probably two or three of the businesses there. Um, Lita health was, was one. And, and, uh, you know, when, when she pitched, I was there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this business is going to work, but I have to invest in her because she is 
so passionate and excited and just engaging to, to listen to. And she had a passion for what she was trying to accomplish. What does Lita Health do? So it's, it's a really cool business. So um, the CEO, she had been sexually assaulted in college. And so she looked at the research and a lot of people don't report. And so she went out and created a kit that's basically an, an at-home kit, a rape kit, sexual assault kit. Oh, wow. That is admissible in court. So she has the attorneys and all these things. And so the, the, what she's doing is they're putting it on college campuses with the RAs in the dorms, you know, different places, but have, making them available so that people who don't necessarily maybe want to go to the police station or the hospital right away can do the, the, the self-administered kit that's still admissible in a court of law. Wow. Um, so it's really cool. And then, yeah, obviously there's, there's opportunities to expand beyond that, but, but that's the mission and passion. And she needed $100,000 at the time and didn't have any sales. And I was just like, Bo and I will do it. I need you to meet Bo. <laughs> right? oh We're gosh. in, yeah. but you know, now tell us what your business really. And that was like after a 15 minute pitch. Um, so, you know, the, the, the people, um, we did uh, Omni Health, which just closed a uh, $17 million round um, last week, Oh well. uh, which is really cool. So we invested early in, in them coming out and they do data, big data for hospital systems to help um, uh, companies who are looking for patients for their trials, right? It's not a very easy process. And so they have this data, uh, this patient data, and now it makes it a lot easier uh, for companies to go in and find the patients for their clinical trials. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, so would you call yourself more so of a, of a family office rather than like a, a VC firm or, or a private yeah, equity we're, firm? We're or? probably in between at the moment. Yeah. You know, we're trying to figure that out a little bit. I, you know, we, we've, some of our investors have been like, hey, you know, we, we love what you guys are doing. Would you all ever consider raising a fund? And, and we're, we're contemplating it, thinking about it. We've just brought on a few uh, more people. So the, oh, nice. the team's grown, uh, brought in a new partner, Kurt Futch, whose background for the last 20, 25 years has all been in the PE side. Gotcha. Um, he's a Nashville native as well, but he's in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and so between Bo and I as the operators and Kurt as the financial background, uh, you know, it's making a pretty good team right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Why, why, why change something that's, <laughs> you know, that's working, right? Yeah. So, um, well, dang. And then, and then what, outside of just kind of like, um, is it Rockmont? Is that Rockmont. right? Rockmont. Yeah, Rockmont. Right. I just, I was like rock tree for a second. I was like, that's not it. Um, what, outside of there, what do you do in your, your free time that, that gets you, I, I think you have a couple kids and, and, a, and a big family. Like, is your, is your life pretty structured inside of there? We always like to ask these investors on, a uh, question. On, uh, on what your daily kind of routine is. Yeah, so um, family-wise, we have um, four children plus one adoptive, so we have five. Um, wow. Today, they, our oldest, he's now getting ready to turn 36, the one we adopted. Wow. Um, so he's been with us for you know, 21, 22 years now, I guess 22 years. Um, then our oldest daughter is 23. She just graduated college. She's working for Palantir in New York. Mm -hmm. And then our, our middle two, our son is a sophomore at SMU and our daughter is a freshman at SMU. So okay. they follow where my wife oh, and I yeah. both there it is. which is great. We yeah. appreciate the opportunity to get back to campus. And then we've got a seventh grade daughter. Uh, so they, they definitely keep us busy from a family standpoint, which is fun. Um, Outside of, of that kind of extracurricular activities, I'm kind of an adventurist at heart. So I'll do okay. do and try just about anything um, that, that kind of gets the adrenaline going. I saw on LinkedIn, actually, <laughs> I wanted to bring this up. You Did you do a walk across Norway? 
Uh, so it's the Netherlands. So Netherlands, the Netherlands, okay. Yeah, that that's called Nijmegen. So a good friend of mine, yeah. uh, Chef Quadfleeg, is is Dutch, and so he'd always been telling us for years about this this walk and this military march, and you know it's it's hard and long and yeah, it's tough, but but you get a little military medal. It's an official Dutch military medal if you complete it. Oh, cool. So it's thirty two miles a day for four days in a row. Um, so it's long, and uh, it's really a, a, an amazing event. Um, Forty five thousand people show up all around the world to do it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you, you do the walk, and there's a lot of military units that are there. 32 um, miles a day 32 for miles four a day, days? four days in a row. So you're, you're, you're putting some what miles happens on your to, feet. I mean, is there a, a deadline that you have to make it? There is. So it's, you okay. got a 12 hours each day to, to finish. Wow. Um, and, and they have a little board, and they show how many people are getting to continue each day. So it, it ticks down uh, every day. So it, that, that was fun. So that, that was neat. Um, but yeah, I, I like to, to do anything that gets the adrenaline going. So I have some recommendations. Yeah. Skydive. Oh yeah. Is yeah. That, what, what are your recommendations? What do you like? I, well, that's when I got really into this year is cause I started making more disposable income and I was like, how do I want to spend my money? Hang gliding in Chattanooga. Yeah, that's have you where you done go that? For, I haven't, but Chattanooga is where you need to go to do You that. have to go hang gliding. Right. I, I went skydiving too, but I and that was cool, but I much prefer hang gliding. And then whitewater rafting in West Virginia on the Gauley River. Okay. Six weeks. There's only six weeks in the fall, but it's the best whitewater <laughs> rafting in the United States. We have, wow. a full, we have a full episode with Joe Maxwell just about water rafting <laughs> on, uh, on the Gauley <laughs> River. <laughs> um, and what else? I really want to do rim to rim. Yeah, I've like, done that. That's you, great. You did that. Yep. Okay. What is that? So that's the Grand Canyon. You go from the north or south to the other. Oh, room. dang. Um, so that's fun. I'll send fun. you one of the, There's this other race. They do them all over the world. Half marathon. De Sa- I'm going to say wrong. De Sabla. So there's the marathon de Sabla is like a run across the Sahara Desert. Okay. I cannot do that. That And I'm up for That'd like a cool. big challenge. <laughs> that one is like, you have to be an elite athlete to do that. And I mean, I did like an Ironman and that's... Yeah. But the half marathon ones, it's like, I think it's like four. It's similar to what you did in the Netherlands, but it's four days of running. But they really make it like a social experience okay. with all of the people. And it's typically in, in terrains that people aren't on. So it'll be through like deserts or mountains that you're yeah. like running for four days and camping all together, but they're all about making it like extremely social. Oh, I guess. very cool. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I love the mountain climb. So I did Aconcagua, which is the highest peak <clears throat> in the southern, you know, in, in South and Central America. Oh, I did cool. that last January. I'll do it again this January because um, I'm training to do Denali, which is in Alaska, um, in May. Um, so I've, I've done the mountain climbing. I've done like Mount Rainier. Actually, when each of my kids are 15, I take them to climb uh, Kilimanjaro. No way. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's an amazing mountain. I would recommend that for anybody. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous and stunning. Um, it, the most beautiful thing I've ever done. Um, Aconcagua is fantastic. It's a little more difficult, uh, a lot colder uh, up there. But yeah, so, and I've done uh, Mount Rainier a couple times. Uh, so you're quite the hiker. Yeah. Try to. Do you bike Grand or run? Teton. Or you... Yeah, so I did, um, I've done a couple of the half Ironmans. So okay. I did, one, I did the Augusta half Ironman last year, nice. last, what, November or so. Um, so that was a great event too. I'd recommend that one. See, I had uh, I had bought that the half Ironman yeah. in, in January of 2020. Okay, and uh, trained. It was it was actually yeah, bought it in January. It was in May of 2020. Obviously, COVID hit. Yeah, so I trained for about six months, whatever. Um, COVID hit. They're like, oh, it's in September. Okay, I'll keep training. You know, I can't, <laughs> I can't stop now. September hits. 
sorry, guys, we're pushing it to next year. Wow. I'm like, I'm done. It's a lot of training. I'm like, I can't train. Well, I also, yeah. I was supposed to do an Ironman in 2020. It got canceled. And so I did do the Ironman in 2021. Oh. I'm trying to get him to do an Ironman. Well, I need They're a, fun. Bull, so did you do the full or the half? I did the full. Full's fan. That's, that's on the to-do list as well. So, yeah, let me know. I said I'd do another one, but I'm not training alone. So I signed up for it with several friends who ended up bailing in the end. And so oh my gosh. I did it with – I trained at the last four months by myself. I did not like that. Yeah. I think it's a little lonely. Yeah. Sure. But um, – well, well, anyways, I want to wrap this up here with, with – uh, like some some word of advice for for people who are out, you know, maybe we like to target it for twenty six year olds trying yeah. to, trying to raise capital and stuff like that. What do you have um, for advice, you know, for for someone like us trying to? Or just words of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, probably a couple things. I mean, I'll use Jermaine Bear's words that he signed off with every time he sent an email, which was never give up. Um, you know, you got to be tenacious and, and be a problem solver. Uh, you have to be creative in how you're going to solve problems as an entrepreneur because you never have all the resources and you never have all the data. You never have all the information. You have to make make significant decisions in the absence of full data. Um, so you can't let that uh, weigh you down. You just have to go with your gut, make your best best guess, mm-hmm. be- best decision, learn from your mistakes. Um, you know, I always tell folks, you know, you, you've got to go first to be a leader. Um, and you, as, a, as a leader of an early stage business or any business that is your CEO, your job is to provide that, 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 uh, that vision and that passion for the organization. If you look at the best businesses out there, um, the best CEOs of those businesses were the ones that had a vision for where they were going to take the business in the future. And so when you step into being the, the CEO and leading a business, you have to have that vision uh, that you can inspire everybody else in that organization. Mm. And, and I always say leader has to go first which means, you know, you got to be out front taking the bullets, yep. right? If you're going to ask anybody else to do anything, you've got to do it first. If you're telling everybody what to do from behind the lines, right, behind the battle lines, you're yeah. just a manager, yeah. and nobody really respects that. Um, nobody <laughs> likes a manager. They like leaders, and leaders go first. And so whenever I had to, whenever I knew I was going to have to ask folks to take half pay or no pay, I always did it for a few months beforehand mm-hmm. and said, hey, I'm doing this already. Um, if we were investing uh, I always invested first to make sure in, in every round. So in every round of financing that we had, um, I, always, I felt strongly that if, if I was going to ask somebody else to invest in the business, they needed to know that I was going to put my money where my mouth was because sure. I believed in it. Yeah. And so in every round that we had, we had every employee, every executive team member, and every board member write a check to the business. Dang. And sometimes that was only $1,000. Yeah. Um, but everybody in the company in each of the funding rounds wrote a check to the business. Wow. And I think, you know, before we went out to talk to other people, I think that spoke volumes because they said, hey, if these folks are that bought in and believe in it so much that they're actually writing a check, not just sweat equity, right? You guys hear it all the time. Ah, oh, sweat equity. Forget sweat equity. Yeah. How much did you actually put in? What did you write a check for? What did your parents write a check for? If you don't have any money, go borrow the money, mm-hmm. right, from somebody. Um, show me that you really believe in what you're telling me, right? In the numbers that you're showing me, how much do you believe in them yourself? Yeah. Or are you just trying to, to get the investment and hope it works out for the best? Exactly. Um, so to me, it's, it's you got to go first as a leader, right? Mm. And you got to be out there going first. So those are those are the things that, that I think about and would encourage people to do, right? Again, creativity can't be undervalued. You have to be very creative in how you solve problems. Um, mm. Because in an entrepreneurial organization, the answers are not going to be what you learn in business school, right? But yeah. I always told my friends that, you know, the budgets that you talk about in business school are, you know, 
a hundredfold what we, you have. I mean, you know, it's like, okay, your budget's $1,000 for marketing. <laughs> How are you going to grow the business? Yeah. Right? Not a million dollars. Yeah. Right? And so— got to get creative. you got to get creative. Yeah. And so that's what you look for in, in yourself if you're going to lead an organization and look for in others if you're going to participate and spend your time and, and energy and dollars mm-hmm. trying to help them grow. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, just—I <laughs> went to business school as well, and it's— yeah, there's there's a lot that that you go through that you don't necessarily learn in there. It's a it's a lot of uh, relationship building and um, you know people who you know and and learning on your own, right? Yeah, net- networking is critical. I'm sure you guys have heard that. Yeah, before, right. I mean, your network is is vital to being able to grow, and you never know who you're going to talk to, who's brother or sisters working here or there that could be helpful. So get out there, tell everybody what you're doing, network as much as possible, and good things will happen. Mm, yeah. Totally. Well, Brian, we thank you so yeah, much guys. for coming on here. Yeah, this, this is, is great. great. You got some great stories that uh, <laughs> that we hope people uh, can relate to. And uh, we, we look forward to seeing where Rockmont goes in, in the next couple of years. And, well, great. And we'll have you on for, for another one soon, all right? That'd be fine. Cool. All awesome. right, thanks. Awesome.